Well, all right, tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. We are continuing forward in our verse-by-verse topical through the Gospel of Matthew. And here in chapter 10, we get our third and final study from chapter 10, uh, this chapter. And it's a very profound chapter. Jesus called his 12 apostles to himself, and he sent them out for a very specific ministry. We know that he sent them out by twos. We don't know how long that ministry was, but they represented him and his message, and they went out. We can presume it was at least weeks, if not maybe a couple months or so. But it was in that front end of his ministry where he's presenting himself as a promised Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and they're representing him to the nation. And we know that the people of Israel were having to formulate the average person, or the common people as Jesus, as it says of Jesus, that the common people heard him gladly, that the everyday person in Israel had to decide as Jesus was making these claims and doing miracles and saying these things, they had to decide, is, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David, the promised one going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3? Is, is this him? He's claiming to be God. Is this, is, he's claiming to be the one who spoke through the burning bush to Moses. He said that I am. And so they had to really think through what they believe. And they, we know that the consequence of believing in Jesus was favorable for the soul, but could be quite disfavorable for their social standing. Because we know in the Gospel of John, when the blind man was healed there in the Gospel of John, that he was, well, he couldn't even have gone to the temple in the first place, but there was threat of expulsion and excommunication for anyone who identified with Jesus at that, by that time. So there's just this building conflict, and it's going to keep building as we go through Matthew But the people that believed the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, they were going to be identified with Jesus. And it began with the apostles going out preaching Jesus. And so this is where we come into it tonight, where Jesus had already said that there'd be, they'd be brought before, speaking to the apostles, they'd be brought before synagogues and councils and all these things, and they'd be rejected for his namesake and it's not really pleasant stuff we want to hear. We want, you know, we want everything to be sunshine and daisies when we come to Christ, and we'd like to just get along with everybody, but it, it doesn't work like that because Jesus is the light of the world, and men love darkness, and they don't come to light or, and or they reject and attack the light, and we are the light of the world reflecting Jesus. So as we go forward in cha- verse 27 of chapter 10, He said, therefore, do not fear, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, and there's nothing hidden that will be not made known. In other words, whatever we go through in this life for Jesus' name, it all straightens itself out in eternity. And God, there's perfect justice in eternity. We can be sure of that. So we pick it up in verse 27 in a red-letter Bible. It's continuing in the red letters, which means it's the words of Jesus. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear... In the ear, preach on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. As I said, chapter 10 of Matthew is very powerful and quite challenging, actually, when you just read through it and go like, wow, this is just reality. And contextually, again, Jesus, King of the Jews, to the Jews, his name would divide the Jews, yes or no, on the Messiah. And then as his name went out into the world through the apostles and still goes out through his church to this day, the name of Jesus divides households. Well, it divides souls. Either you're in the kingdom or you're not. And then his name divides households. His name can divide cities. It can divide businesses. Where we stand and if we identify with Jesus favorably or disfavorably, it's the, it's the divide in line. We're either with Jesus, we're for him, or, and he's for us, or we're opposed to Jesus, and we make ourselves the enemy of the Lord. And remember, Jesus said this, that he, the Father didn't send his son into the world to judge the world because the world is already judged. The world is already judged because men love darkness and don't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So we're already in darkness, and so when we come to Christ, we pass from darkness to light, and we pass from death to life. And I think most of you know that, but we should affirm that as we get into this text tonight contextually. Our message tonight is fear not. Because we left off last week with the warning, therefore don't fear. And it starts again right away here in verse 27. Do not fear. So we're going to talk about not fearing men, but rather fearing God in a good way. In the beginning of this passage we read tonight, verses 27 through 31, we get some contrast. We get darkness and light. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And then we also get the contrast of the fear of men and the fear of God. So the fear of men is those who can kill the body, and men can, and they do. And then he says, but you, rather than fearing men who can kill the body, because the body is going to only last so long anyways, who we should fear is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body. So the body is temporal, but the soul is eternal. And so Jesus just says, hey, this is just for but a vapor, because the New Testament and Old Testament both say that our life is but a vapor. But our soul is forever. We've created in his image, and we have an eternal purpose in the realm of time, and we step into eternity, and the rewards of eternity are based upon faithfulness and obedience in time, and the soul lives on forever, whether in glory with the Lord, in fruitful service with the Lord, in the next dimension, or in outer darkness imploding on ourselves and all the things we did in rejecting Christ and his kingdom of light and life, which is the light and life of men. We get another contrast between birds and disciples. So that one's a better one because it's not such a contrast of positive, negative, if you will, but just birds, it's a favorable one. The birds are favorable because we're told that the Lord knows the birds and he knows when they fall to the ground. Details. In a universe of trillions of galaxies, God knows the details of a bird falling to the ground. And you should remind yourself of that when you see something like that. I see the little birds in our backyard all the time, and especially in the springtime, they really start chirping away, and they're fun to watch. And the Lord is the God of details, and he knows 
There's not one bird chirping in March in Orange County that the Lord doesn't know. There's not one swallow returning to Capistrano that the Lord doesn't see the flight path of that bird returning to Capistrano. And since the Lord has all these details of the universe, from the micro to the macro, galaxies and birds in our planet and the micro of what we can't even see, like we read in Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, as cells replicate and forms the human that you are in your mother's womb, who we are, God's got it. And so Jesus is saying, God's got it. The Father has this. But in saying that, we know that all things are made by Christ and for Christ, and him all things consist. We know there's nothing made that wasn't made without Christ involved in it. And so we realize, tonight as we look at this text, the mystery of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God triune in nature, is there is a mystery to it, but there's an absolute truth to it. And God, Father, Son, and Spirit are creator. They're Savior, and God is one, and through Father, Son, and Spirit, he's working in our lives with purpose. Well, you go back to Genesis, and what does God say there in, in the very beginning? Let us make man in our image. And we're not in the image of angels, so I don't think that's angels speaking that. That's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, triune in nature, in heaven, in the throne room, like Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, saying, let us make man in our image. And then we get in chapter 2, where the woman comes from the man, and she's made in the image of man, but of course, in the image of God as well. In fact, those are two of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, because there's no sin, and God saw all that he did, and it was good, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, and he put... Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them a task to tend the garden. Sinless, beauty, purpose, fellowship. Wow. A preview of eternity, by the way. So in this background of contrasting light and darkness, in this background of fearing men or fearing God, the temporal versus eternal, and in this background of the contrast of like, God cares about the birds and he cares much more about you, much more value. We would say this as we think fear not Put value over your life tonight and value over the con of your life because Jesus died for our lives. And there's value on every human life. And I talk about this a lot, especially in Sanctity of Life last month in January, like the value of life. And once you dehumanize any life, you can justify the evil you do to it. Whether you're Germans putting Jews on trains to death camps or whether you're Planned Parenthood and killing millions of babies in America right? Like once you dehumanize a person or whites persecuting blacks before civil rights actions or uh, coastal Vietnamese persecuting Hong Vietnamese in the mountains, once you dehumanize somebody, you can justify any evil you do to them. We need to understand the value of life and that Christ came and died once for all because God values life and he loves people. And we often say this, and I'm sure Greg Gloria said this, Billy Graham certainly did, that if you were the only one living, Jesus would have come and died on the cross for you and your sins. And we need to remind ourselves of that tonight. The value of our life before God, that God so loved the world, he gave his son, that whoever, and that's us tonight, believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. And so as we go forward from this value, we see that the opportunity that he gives each human being, and the ultimate opportunity is to receive his revelation of himself, Romans 1 says, in creation, before anyone even hears the gospel. And then through the gospel message, when you hear the full gospel. That's what we're told in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's salvation. We're told it's the good confession. That's that place where we've come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
and realize we're sinners at war with God, opposed to God, and we hear the good news that God so loved the world he gave his son, that we are yet enemies, Christ died for us. By this we know love that Christ died for us, and God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we become the righteousness of God, and we, we believe and we confess. That's why Greg Laurie will call you forward at Harvest Crusade so you can publicly confess. Now, we don't all get the chance to do a public confession like that, but we would consciously make that decision to receive Christ, and you wake up the next day, you're going to confess. If Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you're going to go forward, and sooner or later, it's going to come to a head at the kitchen table in your family. It's going to come to a head at the business meeting at work. It's just going to come to a head how you conduct yourself that you're the light and you might shine with actions, but ultimately you're going to shine with words as well. We're going to confess. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. The public confession has to come. And in the context of these apostles being sent out, that's what Jesus is talking about. We, we mentioned this. Can you imagine? They're just everyday people like us. They're a tax collector. He worked for the IRS. This, these guys are fishermen. They're business, in business together. There's this guy over here and that guy over there and Simon the Zealot who wants to overthrow Rome. And he, he's, you know, these are everyday people. And now they're going out. Okay, how do we do this in twos and learning how to work together as a two-man team representing Christ, go into a village and, and proclaim Jesus of Nazareth to that village as the Savior and either see people respond favorably, shalom, shalom, break bread and celebrate that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah or reject them and chase them out of town where they shake the dust off their feet. We've already saw that two weeks ago in this chapter. And those things, can it can go either way. Most of us know that. So Jesus just brings to a key apex here that there has to be a confession. He didn't hang publicly on the cross for our sins to have us shrink back from public to be identified with him. It's that simple. He died so we might live. And our identity is in him. And it's inevitable when people say, I have a private faith. It can only be, you might say you have a, a quiet faith, but it's not a private faith. The gospel is not a private faith. It might be toned down at various times, like if you live in Iran or Pakistan, how that faith is lived out and how you share that faith. Or communist Romania, like Sam Coca's grandparents had and how they practiced their faith and lived their faith. When Brother Andrew came to your Romanian village and they Everyone came to a Bible meeting in the basement one hour apart. Every person that was a believer, they came one hour apart. So there was no suspicion with the communists. They come one hour apart. So it take, you know, eight hours to get eight people there, have a two-hour meeting praising the Lord in the basement, and then one hour apart they leave. That's more like a, a quiet faith, but that's not a private faith. You see? So it's important. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, then I will confess them before my Father who is in heaven. This is just straight up. There's no mystery theology to this passage. And our confession is of Jesus. We see in the book of Acts, early on with the church, as these apostles went out and were changing the world in their own community, be dynamic as the ladies are reading in their passages on Saturday once a month, that Peter and John were the first among equals and seemed to have the they seem to be the voice of the group, but still they, all these apostles were used this way. But when they stood before the very same men, the very same men who had Jesus crucified and justified it by dehumanizing Jesus, 
and justified it when good becomes evil and evil becomes good and convinced the masses to do the same because that's how totalitarians work. Here we see Peter and John just shortly thereafter filled with the Holy Spirit standing for these same men with the, the fear they could have had. Now remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus gave him a chance to say he loved him three times there in the end of the Gospel of John. And then we see like super Peter. Jesus said in the book of Acts, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And there's Peter and John. And like, they're so bold. It says they're filled with the Spirit. They were so bold in their words. And they preached Jesus to them, to the ones who crucified Jesus. And they said, oh, you're intent on bringing this man's blood on us. And they just preached the gospel and they didn't let up. They were threatened verbally in chapter 4 and then chapter 5. They're, they're beaten, and they just, they, just don't back, they just don't back down. They're like, you can do what you think is right with God, but as for us, this is what we're going to do. We're alive for this purpose, to preach Jesus Christ, the Savior and Messiah of the world. So they had the good confession. That confession cost James his life, the Apostle James, in the book of Acts. And we're told in Fox's book of Martyr, it cost all but John, the Apostle, their lives. 11 of the original 12, according to church history, were 10 of the original 12. Judas hung himself, so that leaves 10. 10 of the 11 were killed for their faith. And that's in the famous book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, based upon historical records, early church records, which we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts in the early church. But John, John evidently, when he wrote Revelation, it's speculated he died of old age, although he was greatly persecuted before he died of old age. These guys went to the grave with a good confession right to the end. One of my favorite stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs is the story of the famous Reformation preacher, Hugh Latimer. And so what they would do is, and this is again like the Nazis with the Jews and, and, and whites to blacks here in the history of our nation and one Indian tribe to another Indian tribe before you know, the Western world came here and it's what the Asians do to each other. It's just what African tribes do to each other. But you, you persecute and you humiliate the people. You, you dehumanize them. And with Hugh Latimer, what happened was, is they, what they would do in the Reformation is they'd, they'd put a dunce cap on somebody. So they would, they would humiliate their, their faith in Christianity. They'd march them through the city and make them essentially, that's the term, village idiot. That was a term in the 40s and 50s. My dad would use that term. It was an older term. You know, ah, he's a village idiot. So that they would make them the village idiot. And then they'd burn them at the stake. So the fear of public humiliation was even equal to or greater than the fear of being burned at the stake. So you try and humiliate them to get them recant. Because remember, all those state churches in the Reformation area, whether it's the England Anglican Church or Luther and the German Church, you know, you, you, it was your identity. You're baptized an infant into that religion, that Christian element of your religion, and so there was persecution to not identify with it, particularly with the Catholic Church and the Poles and all those kind of people. Well, Hugh Latimer, his friend, came to him the night before he was going to be dummy cap and burned at the stake, and he said, hey, you know, life is sweet and death is bitter. You should recant what your position is and have your life restored and avoid death. And what Hugh Latimer said, I would say, is a good word for all of us. It's in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He said, yes, life is sweet, but the life to come is more sweet. 
And yes, death is bitter, but the death to come is far more bitter. And they marched him through the city with public humiliation the next day and burned him at the stake. You just have to decide how you're going to go. We're all going to go. You live long enough, you'll go not knowing who you are. I, I see it every day I visit my dad. I see people in their 90s who do not know who they are. And it's hard to see. I see people dying of painful terminal illnesses in my journey. We see sudden tragedies. We're all going to go. And one way you should never fear going is for the testimony and the confession of Jesus Christ publicly. So resolve in your heart to never deny the Lord publicly. And to be like Peter and John and the the legacy of the church, to be spirit-filled and to stand for Jesus and proclaim Jesus without shame. Because the one who confesses Jesus before men, he will confess before the Father. But the one who denies Jesus before men will be denied before the Father. And if you want to take your chances with that, that's your choice. There's a lot of grace in this universe But there's a big asterisk on that one. And if you ever come to the place where you deny the Lord, hopefully you'll get a rematch with that and have a chance to proclaim for the Lord. It's in red letters. It's a good confession. We confess Jesus. See, when we come to Christ, we confess him in our soul. And it's resolved. We belong to Jesus. And in doing so, we confess him in our family and whatever it brings with the family. We confess him in our work and how we carry ourselves Confess them in our world and how we conduct ourselves. And our behavior is a confession, and we talk about that a lot, but our words are a confession. And there just comes times you need to speak up, and you're on trial, and you're being attacked, and that's when you want to stand. Just see yourself before the throne of God on the day of the Lord with the fire of God testing the works, and see what that looks like. See what confessing Christ under persecution looks like versus denying Christ under the fear of men. Whenever I feel like the wicked get away at things, or they're young and strong and rich and they can do whatever they want, I just think, you know, someday you'll be old, poor, and won't even know who you are. And that's what I think. Because that's the way it works. The glory of man is as the flower, it grows and it blossoms, and then it withers away. But the word of the Lord abideth forever, Isaiah 40. Represent the body of Christ. There's certain things you try and find compromise to do well in this world and function with other people of faith and, you know, tolerance and that kind of stuff. But let me tell you, you do not compromise the confession of Jesus Christ publicly, ever. Resolve that in your heart. Because he's the author and finisher of faith. He's everything. And without him, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Purpose in your heart, always the good confession. The second thing we see about fear not is the preeminence of Jesus in our life. Verse 39 We read that he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself basically was persecuted and executed for his faith in Jesus, sort of, because he was part of the trying to overthrow Hitler, his famous book, Discipleship, is that famous quote, when Jesus bids a man to follow him, he bids a man to die, to die to himself. And that's the hardest death there is. One can only imagine when he said things like this to disciples, in their Roman world, crucified people were criminals, usually murderers and violent, violent criminals. And they'd hang them publicly, usually naked. 
to the full humiliation of the criminal, to be a restraint against evil in a society. The Romans understood that well. So when Jesus would say, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, it'd just be like, it'd just be another one of those hard Jesus sayings in this context. That's a hard Jesus saying in this context. Now we know that probably the best way to understand picking up our cross daily is Jesus in the garden before the Father saying, not my will, but thy will be done. If there's any other way, but nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's the surrendering of our will to God's will at all costs, no matter what. Because again, as Billy Graham would say, Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And that's a hard one for all of us. It's hard for me at 62. I'm sure it's going to be hard at 92. It's not, a, it's, it's just a, our flesh wants to rule. Our pride wants to rule. But Christ must be supreme over all. Jesus has to be the supreme and preeminent relationship. He has to be before your spouse. And it's to the benefit of your spouse that he is before your spouse. Because the alternative is your spouse is first, and that means your spouse is God. Jesus needs to be God. Jesus is God, then you're a better husband or wife to your spouse. In fact, I've mentioned this, but as I meditate on the scriptures daily, and as I just really meditate on them, created with purpose, and then the Ten Commandments, I'll actually go through the covenants too. You know, Noah found grace and as the Lord, Abraham believed God was kind of for righteousness. But really, if you start with creation, origin, then the Ten Commandments, moral standard, then as you know, the Beatitudes, discipleship, and then fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit will produce in your life. I go over those things in my mind. I meditate upon them. You know, the more I've been meditating on the Ten Commandments, the more they just like, it's the golden standard of right and wrong. But you always start with, you'll have no other gods before me. And you realize, if Jesus isn't Lord, everybody has another god before him. Whether a false god, the gods of men in a religious sense, or philosophical gods and the worship of man's pseudo-blinded intellect, or passionate pursuits that supplant the place of Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is, for the believer, the author and finisher of our faith. He's Lord of all or not Lord at all. All things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist. And therefore, like, Jesus is worthy to be supreme. Our hearts right now are beating because Jesus is allowing them to beat, and they've been designed to beat. Our brains are functioning as a supercomputer, understanding me in the English language, because you've learned this language and you're probably using less than 5% of your brain and you're doing just great with the English language right now, just like me. This capacity, watching when you have grandkids, you don't think about when you have kids because you're so busy having kids. When you have grandkids, you think about it. When Bonbon bon shows up at two and, and he's putting together all these words and these concepts and his mind is working like the supercomputer and you see how he sees the whole world and, and how it all goes together and how he processes. And you might see this as a parent, but let me tell you as a grandparent, you're like, this is amazing. The human mind is amazing. I'm like, hey, you know, Hannah, my daughter has, she plays all this kind of like Bach and Beethoven kind of stuff for Louis, right? Uh, granddaughter Louis and fill her mind with classical music, you know, that kind of stuff. And then she has like the Spanish hour where she plays Spanish, you know, for Louis, for sure. The best time to learn multiple languages when you're a toddler. We all know that. 
He should know that. It's really hard later on. But that brain early on, I'm like, hey, add Mandarin, Korean, and French. <laughs> those, are, those, are, those are five, you know, English, Spanish, Mandarin, Korean, and French. Those are five languages. Your kids speak those five languages. They're going to have way more opportunities for Jesus than they might not otherwise have. We all know if you're bilingual, you have a much better chance of getting a job in America right now. If you're fluent in Spanish and English, you need a better chance. French doesn't help you as much, but if you go overseas, it helps you a lot because a lot of the world speaks French. Korean because they're an emerging country, and of course, Mandarin is the most spoken language in the world. It's number one, more people speak Mandarin than any other, other language there is. We're going to be down to 32 languages within 50 years. Essentially, the whole world is going to speak 32 languages in 50 years. Almost all major universities worldwide focus on 28 languages. Thousands of languages are going to die by the time the baby boomers are gone. And by the time you put the Gen Xers in the grave, just, just, some, just some primary languages. That's where it's going. For real. I'm not kidding. You'll be surprised when you go to Africa in 40 years if you're still alive and how many Africans are speaking Mandarin. That's going to be the language of the next generation of Africans. Believe me, it will be. You'll mark my words, you young people. You live to see 2051 and I'm gone before 90. Be like, oh my goodness, there's Africans speaking Mandarin. Right. That's how it works. Why do you think most of the world speaks English or German or French? Because those countries were in those countries, developed those countries, and the future generations spoke the language of those countries. And right now, that's what's happening in Africa with the Chinese. The Silk Road is reopened. All those resources. The brain is amazing that you can have these cognitive capacities to figure out like Einstein's mind and relativity and all this kind of stuff. Like how do you even... We're creating this image. And yet... We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is all for Jesus. It all comes from Jesus. It's all for Jesus. And whenever it's not used for Jesus, it's, it's folly. And as we might say with wheat and chaff, it's chaff. It's chaff. So you see, he has to be preeminent because he's God. We're made by him and for him. We exist for him. And as you think about your life and the purposes of your life, this is the beauty. This, when I really think about Genesis 2, this is what I come back to. Since there was a plan in the garden before sin, there was a beautiful marriage before sin, there was a beautiful plan. Genesis chapter 2 is like the most beautiful chapter, if you really look at it, before sin. When we come to Christ, since we're told that no one earns salvation by works of the law, no one shall be saved. So the law, Ten Commandments is good, but we can't save ourselves that way. So we're saved by grace, saved through faith. But then the Spirit comes into us, and it's Christ in us, hope of glory. And God's given us to all things pertaining to life and godliness by his Spirit. And we're told that we are his workmanship. Since we've been saved by grace, through faith, we're his workmanship. So now, the lost work of art that were the head of our race, Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 2, the moment you give your life to Christ, or anyone gives their life to Christ, they're now born from above, born in the Spirit of God, and we now become his workmanship. God is supreme. Jesus reigns. And now we're his work of art. And the only way we become a complete, finished work of art for the day of the Lord is to have Jesus be Lord until it is the day of the Lord. Otherwise, we're just an incomplete painting. Now, I was at Sam Coca's house a year ago, and it's an incomplete painting on the wall. I don't know if you ever finished that painting, but it's incomplete. It's like an incomplete painting. I'm like, that's oh, Sam, that's interesting. You have an incomplete painting on your wall. Let's just try to find that. Listen, that's what our life looks like when we don't let Jesus be Lord. We're like a book with missing pages. 
were like a sculpture incomplete. It didn't get done right. It didn't get finished. Our life is meant to be a work of art. And here's the beauty of it. Every one of us is a unique work of art. For we're his workmanship, which is poema, there in Ephesians 2.10. So we're not working our way to heaven, because that's just us, like kindergartners, just mixing paint and getting gray. Us having Jesus be Lord of all, picking up our cross daily and dying to our self-will and surrendering to his perfect will, for his perfect plans in our life, becomes the work of art. The distinctions of the colors, the, the, the moods, and the beauty of it. That's what our life is meant to be. It's a restoration of Genesis 2 for you in time, space, and matter, and for me. And every act of obedience going toward the glory fulfills that work of art and accentuates that work of art. But every act of disobedience takes away from the glory of the end product. We've all seen musicians fall short of what they could have done with their careers. We've all seen athletes fall short of what they could have been. We've seen politicians fall short because of compromises, wreck their political career. We've all seen human beings come short of worldly greatness by their own self-punishments and the folly of their decisions and what it costs them. It's the same with the kingdom. So when Jesus said he bids a man or a woman to die to follow him, it's their own benefit. Because what he's killing is pride, lust of the flesh, and lust of eyes. And what he's establishing is abundant life, eternal life, and a work of art for all eternity fulfilled. That's what he's doing. And that should motivate us to not be worried about what we're going to lose, but be focused on what we're going to gain as we press into Jesus. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The famous missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, said, before he laid down his life for the Ecuador, uh, for the Aka Indians. And then the third thing we see here is our rewards with Jesus. That verses 40 through 42. This little cluster of verses is, is pretty cool because it mentions three times the word reward. Anytime the Bible says reward, or there's just certain, when you see certain words that should get your attention, and when you see a repetition of words that should get your attention, and three times here it says the reward. So, you know, the reward the, shall receive a prophet's reward, shall receive a righteous man's reward, and will not by no means lose his, and we can say, or her reward. I think I speak for most of us. It's not that like we wake up and say, I'm working on my rewards for heaven. Now, if you're on a sports team, you might say, hey, I want to be the MVP this year. I want to be the most valuable player. I want to be the defensive player of the year, comeback player of the year. In my serving career, I actually had two interesting awards. And to be honest, I'm proud of them in a good way because it was all the Lord. But in 1978, my rookie year on the pro tour, I received the award as the most inspirational surfer on the world tour. That's pretty cool. I like, they, they said Joey Brand's the most inspirational surfer. This kid from Carlsbad came out of nowhere. He is the most inspirational surfer on the world tour. The third year of pro surfing. I wasn't even getting paid to be a pro surfer yet. But I beat the world champion, my first pro contest, Robert Bartholomew. I won a pro contest and the check bounced. $3,000 a check bounced. It's pro surfing, 1978. It checked balance. But then I made the Pipe Masters Finals with Jerry Lopez, and I was on TV, ABC World Sports. I got a couple hundred dollars for that, and then O'Neill Wetsuit signed me up for $100 a month, January 1st, 1979. I got a $100 check in the mail every month from O'Neill Wetsuits. 
And I couldn't help but thinking in the way Joy Brown thanks my junior high teacher who told me I'd never get paid for surfing. She said, not only would I not get paid, no one would ever get paid for surfing. <laughs> yeah. Then in 1984, after I had the great comeback, when I quit smoking weed, quit partying, got serious about life, finished seventh in the world, I was the most improved surfer on the ASP World Tour. Then I realized how much more I could do in my life if I applied myself fully to what I had the potential to do. I was the most improved surfer in the world. God has rewards. We don't think about, at least I don't, I really don't think about rewards with the Lord. But you know, you get rewards with a credit card, right? You get more travel miles on a plane. There's all kinds of rewards you can get in life. You get a reward for this, a reward for that. You got a bonus. You know, in football, the last pro game of the season, the last Sunday of every NFL season now, all these guys are trying to get their bonuses. So if you get like these, one guy needs three catches and he gets an extra half million. So then the quarterback and him like, hey, here. <laughs> There's a half million, right? And you, I saw a guy, the last game of the season, he, ta- he sacked the quarterback, and he was dancing. like The game was like 28 to nothing. I'm like, what's going on? And he said his, his uh, reward, his bonus was $1 million for getting 12 sacks on this season. I was like, I'll be dancing too. <laughs> so we understand this, right? Rewards, incentivized rewards. Jesus is talking about rewards right here. The rewards of a prophet. The rewards of a righteous man. And rewards that can't be taken from you. They get our attention. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3 that when we stand before the Lord, there's like a fire that tests our works and motives. And it indicates that there are awards or rewards for the faithfulness of the good things we did with the Lord in this journey of life. We also see in Matthew 25, remember the one, the parable, the one got two and got four, the one got five, made ten. And... The master says to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord today, implying that there's more to come. And the context of that is, it's the return of Christ. It's the day of the Lord. Then Luke 19, same type of parable. The one has five minus, he gets 10 minus. And then the master says, you've been faithful to get 10 minus. Now you're going to get 10 cities. So that's not just rewards, but it's an upgrade based upon stewardship. You're faithful at this. You can handle that. Like I told my son Luke this week, who's got a business plan, a new business he's starting. Luke, see, we could do this, but what you're going to learn in in starting the business in the first year or two is you're going to learn trial and error, and you're going to figure out which which products are in demand, which ones to build up your inventory on. And you know, so I said the journey, the journey prepares you for the destination. And again, it's not how much you have when you get to the destination; it's who you became when you get to the destination. The greatest reward of, of greatness isn't even so much what you accomplish, but who you became. And as I said on Instagram posts this week, we rarely see people who can't be great. We just rarely find people who are willing to give everything to be great. Because God has greatness for all of us. Because when we come to Christ, where's workmanship? And what could be greater than the personal greatness of being fully all in with the Lord? fulfilling what he has for us. There are rewards on the day of the Lord. For all of us in the kingdom, we know there's no more tears and no more sorrow. That's going to be a beautiful reward, isn't it? No more tears, no more, no more injustices. I love the quote Martin Luther King Jr. He said, the wheels of justice turn ever so slowly, but they do turn fully. And they will in eternity. There's, there's rewards for us. 
Here, Jesus says, a cup of cold water has a reward. So just remind us, just to be generous people in our disposition and to shine for Jesus, to, 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 to not fear men or what people think, fear God, have the good confession, be yielded to the Lord, and serve the Lord, and store up rewards, and know that a cup of cold water, a cup of cold water with an act of kindness done in Jesus' name has eternal fruit for the eternal end game. That's very encouraging. Every kind thing you do for someone as a representative of Christ, I believe has lasting fruit and reward in eternity. So be aware, shine, be bold, be aware, look for opportunity, and and let your eyes and hands and feet truly be shining for Jesus. And when people say, why, how, whether favorably or disfavorably, let them know it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And this is a beautiful chapter. It's challenging at times, but it's very encouraging because it starts out with sending them out and it ends with, hey, there's a reward for giving someone a cup of cold water. I, I like that. It tells us not to lose heart. It tells us to stay on point, be faithful, and see it through. Yes and amen.